Podcast 8, The Future of Global Child Health, Part 1, a chat with Mike Merson and Teresa Diaz. Welcome back to my podcast uh, on the Social Edge Conversations, an in-depth magazine on health, wealth and a sustainable future. So if you're interested in medicine, public health, nutrition, or in the politics and economics of sustainable development, this is a podcast for you. And today we're focusing on future directions for child health based on the recently published uh, series of papers in the BMJ. We'll be talking to Professor Mike Merson, who was the f- one of the founder directors of diarrheal disease and acute respiratory infection at WHO, and then moved on to the early days of HIV and AIDS. Uh, He's an academic professor, now retired, but full of great insight and opinions about what makes things work at scale. And then we'll be talking to Teresa Diaz, an old colleague of mine who uh, worked for many years at the Center for Disease Control in America. Then she moved to UNICEF for seven years and is now at WHO working on uh, evaluation, monitoring and evaluation in maternal and child health. But first, let's just go over some things that have caught my eye in the last week or two. Um, so first, Yemen is a nightmare still. Um and it's not just the people that are being killed by all the re- the bombing that's going on there, but their economy is absolutely plunging and the currency has fallen to its lowest ever level, which means that buying anything is much more difficult. And it's likely that the economic effects of conflict will be uh, kill many more people than those in the war. And we urgently need a diplomatic solution. In India, the effects of floods in Kerala caused, I I was surprised by this, 50 plus deaths from leptospirosis. Um, And for some time they had shortages of access to doxycycline, but the Kerala state is pretty efficient. And I think they dealt with that pretty quickly. But again, it shows you that it's not just the effect of drowning and the like, it's the infectious diseases that follow that. I'm pleased to see that Spain are going to double their aid to UNRWA, the uh, Palestinian United Nations um, support program that had its budget entirely cut by the uh, Americans, by the US government, I should say. And I also was very depressed by the report in The Guardian in the UK that almost four million children are too poor to have a healthy diet. Indeed, many indicators of child health and poverty have deteriorated over the past eight years in my country. Uh, This was a study by the Food Foundation. And of course, a lot of it relates to the problems with rollout of the so-called universal credit benefit system, which uh, has had many delays and many poor people have not had access to it. And consequently, um, Attendance at food banks has gone up dramatically. But this week, I want to focus just a little bit on the WHO report that came out on lack of exercise, putting uh, more than a quarter in some countries, a third or even more of people at risk. 
And this is a report that came out from my old colleague, Fiona Bull. She published a, a, a really good paper with others in The Lancet, where they showed that obviously not taking enough exercise is a major risk factor for non-communicable diseases like diabetes, heart attack, stroke. But it also has a big negative effect on mental health, quality of life. So they tried to look at how many people don't get enough physical exercise. They looked at 358 surveys across 168 countries. uh, And they came up with a figure of about 28% of people took insufficient physical activity with a gender difference. Uh, Women, uh, according to these reports, take less exercise. Um, And that the prevalence in high-income countries in 2016 Uh, was much higher than in low-income countries, which was only about 16%, not surprising there. But over the past 15 years, it's gone up. It's gone up from about 31% to nearly 37%. So they're basically saying, look, we're not reaching our targets on global physical activity, uh, which is fair enough. Uh, My concern really is that I think this data underreports, to be honest, Uh, They recognise that the survey questionnaire is imperfect. They've tried to uh, deal with that. So what they do is they they ask about how much exercise you take at work in the household for your transport to get to and from places and during your leisure time. And that might explain why women are reported to take less exercise, because many, many women across the world work in the home. Um, but they, the, the, the criteria is that you should take at least 30 minutes of moderate activity per day on at least five days in a week. I'm not sure a questionnaire really is reliable in giving that data. They do look at other uh, uh, reported studies using wearable devices and pedometers and, and the like. Um, but they also realise that there is under-reporting. Um, and so, of, or, or rather, over-reporting of physical activity. So, under-reporting the prevalence. And they correct for that. So, that for the big international physical activity questionnaire, which is very widely used, it tends to under-report inactivity compared to other questionnaires. So, they adjust for that. They adjust for urban samples compared to rural, uh, and they also allow for missing data. But I I worry a bit about that the situation may be far worse than we think. There's also some oddities that uh, what countries would you expect to be the worst in this score? And it turns out that it's Saudi Arabia... Germany and Brazil for for both men and women, where the the reports have gone up very dramatically of inactivity, which really surprised me. But it also made me worry that some countries are not reporting it adequately. Anyway, I think I hats off to Fiona Bull and colleagues. Despite any problems with the data, it shows we have a huge problem worldwide and that it's getting worse and we need to do something about it. And that's not easy, uh, particularly with urbanisation, with lack of opportunities to exercise, 
where women are often not allowed to exercise for various cultural reasons. And uh, this is contributing towards the massive rise in non-communicable diseases that we're seeing everywhere. So we have to do something about it. So, uh, Mike, really good to chat with you. And you, of course, go back a long way. And you did a lot of work with WHO in the early years. And I know you were largely responsible for the very successful control of diarrheal disease program, the scale up of oral rehydration solution. I think you were involved in the pneumonia program a bit. And then you got involved very much in HIV. So you've had huge experience in managing these kind of global programs. What's your feeling and perception about the integrated management of childhood illness program as from an outside perspective? Well, certainly it is a little bit from an outside perspective since, uh, as you said, I was very much involved in originally setting up the diarrhea and respiratory programs and then moved into AIDS and then, and then left WHO in the mid-90s about the time that this integrated approach took hold. I think from a historical perspective, it's understandable um, how that happened um, and uh, what, uh, what was sought made a lot of sense. The child coming to the health center or being seen in the community um, often has multiple problems and it's, it's good to look at the holistic child and that was the goal of certainly IMCI. The, the challenge we face is that what we had in the, in the early days were more of a program approach where we were very focused after Alma-Ata um, in coming up with some selective primary health care interventions. We had uh, um, what was called the child uh, survival strategies, and that included all rehydration therapy and breastfeeding, immunization, nutrition. And, and uh, there, there was a much more of a sharp focus on programs with targets uh, on these specific diseases, and and that uh, had uh, a good um, outcome, and really got these programs off to a wonderful start. The integrated approach, which followed, took the uh, specific emphasis on off these these uh, diseases, and while we did look at the child in a more holistic way, we lost the programmatic approach, the setting of targets. Um, the measurement of those targets and the feeling of accountability uh, at the national level and at the global level. Uh, and I think the recent evaluation of IMCI has again shown that although the, the uh, program, the strategy has been adapted, uh, it, quite widespread actually, it's been piecemeal and it's been um, nearly impossible to know uh, the outcome uh, in, in the countries. So, as we you've said in your paper, IMCI was conceived as a stool with three legs. So you, you've got the health worker skills component, which I think we all agree was the main thrust of what actually happened on the ground. And, and some of that was quite successful. But the other two were the systems issues of getting, you know, the, the health system, the numbers of workers, the drug supplies, the information, all of that stuff, right? And then, of course, the community engagement. And we could talk about that. But are we being a bit too hard? I mean, playing devil's advocate, 
when you're dealing with a single disease, a vertical approach, oral rehydration solution, you know, it's much easier to set a target, isn't it? If you're trying to change the whole system to improve maternal and child health, is that as easy to do from a kind of a sort of vertical stroke horizontal approach or a diagonal approach, some people call it? Well, certainly it it is uh, easier when you have a more vertical approach. I think the question that, in in retrospect, we could ask is whether the three stools should have been put more in an operational program perspective. For each of the stools, would it have been – each of the legs of the stools, would it have been good uh, if we had helped countries set specific targets and then help them measure them? I think that, um, in particular, as you've already said, uh, we we were uh, we did pretty well at the facility level, and we did rather poorly in in the strengthening of health systems, and particularly at the community level. And I think that is um, apparent today in 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 in, what, in the effort being made with universal health coverage to try to overcome that. Um, so I, I, I think that's why, as you say, a diagonal approach might, in retrospect, have been have been a, a better way to go. I think we also have to remember that during the 90s, about the time when this integrated approach was being uh, initiated, we were faced with the AIDS pandemic. We didn't know where that was going. Um, and um, this led, as you know, to uh, new governance structures. Uh, the WHO program uh, was shut down uh, literally overnight. We, we had UNAIDS created, then we had the Global Fund created. Um, and, and now, in fact, there's talk of even the new governance structure for AIDS. And, and I think that that also resulted in a large sum of money going to AIDS. Uh, and then with, with TB and malaria added on through the Global Fund. I think that additional uh, complexity um, also resulted in, in countries taking their eye off the ball a little bit when it came to child and maternal and child health. Now, I don't mean to speak doom and gloom because certainly we have made real progress in the Millennium Development Goal era with child mortality and, and to some extent with maternal mortality. I think the real question now is how do we move forward? How do we move forward with an AIDS uh, pandemic that is not going to end uh, by 2030 and is not going to reach its 90-90 goals of 2020 uh, with half the people needing treatment uh, still not getting treatment? How do we deal with tuberculosis, which is far from controlled? Um, and of course, we still have the challenge of malaria. And at the same time, uh, we want to build health systems and we're calling on countries to provide more domestic financing. So I think we're in a really interesting time, uh, probably as interesting as it's been in the past few decades, uh, as we think through how we're going to move forward in meeting the sustainable development goals. Yeah, just to, just to pause there, you actually, as you were talking, I was thinking the whole AIDS, HIV issue is not that dissimilar to a broader, more integrated approach. I mean, this is not just a simple distribute a packet of oral rehydration solution, as you well know. 
So my question is, what did the AIDS group HIV community get right on systems and community engagement that we could draw lessons from for MCH? Was it simply that there was more money to be invested or more passion because there were very specific groups that uh, did a lot to engage communities around HIV? Is, is, is that the reality or, or is there something that they did that we didn't do? Uh, I think you, you've nailed two of, the, uh, two of the heads right there. I think certainly there was more money, a lot more money, um, particularly when, when treatment became available. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, that, that made a huge difference. And then, of course, there was a, a great um, advocacy uh, by um, the, uh, those groups at risk. Uh, and certainly we saw enormous community involvement and community engagement. I would say that the countries that did the best in confronting AIDS and have done the best are those that have had uh, strong community engagement. Uh, those, those were two key factors in, in, the, in the AIDS response. And a third was the fact that countries were held accountable, that there was a, a serious effort at monitoring, um, as you know, through the, uh, initially through the UN General Assembly uh, meeting in, in, in around the turn of the century, uh, but then the constant setting of targets and reporting on an annual basis. Um, that's what I think we, going back earlier, that's what I think was really missed in IMCI. Uh, this, this feeling of accountability, this feeling of reporting, and also the, 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 the global ownership. I think what we had in AIDS, um, although there was and still is tension among the various organizations, but certainly there was PEPFAR and there was the Global Fund and to some extent UNAIDS. And, and there was a, a real sense of accountability uh, among, uh, by the donors uh, that these organizations felt. And I don't think UNICEF and WHO um, felt that accountability enough when it came to IMCI. I was impressed that in the paper which appeared in the, in the recent uh, BMJ um, online uh, article reviews, the reviews of IMCI, uh, the, the paper that UNICEF and WHO wrote calls where, is called Where's the Leadership? And I think that is a lesson with AIDS we had. Uh, but we, we, we really need that again uh, with child health and maternal health. And I'm delighted that uh, both organizations are uh, looking at their strategies and prepared now to step up and provide that leadership. We need it more than ever. Yeah, and and obviously we need the resources to boot to try and make it happen. Now, I, t I, I do agree with you that um, we've got to think much more now about how we monitor in detail what strengthening health systems really means. And there, you know, and there's a lot of work being done on this. There are indicators, there are things that we can measure very specifically, and we can pay much more attention to process, particularly at the district level, but also with national leaders. Uh, what always strikes me is that in the community engagement front, it's always an afterthought, particularly with the biomedical community. You know, they're very comfortable with drugs and training health workers. But then people just say, oh, and we'll do a bit of community engagement, but don't apply the same kind of rigorous management and scientific lens to it. And there's, you know, there's a lot more information now about 
the conditions under which community health worker programs work much better and also the way in which you can mobilize communities through women's groups committees and the like and they can have an enormous impact and i i I just think we need to be paying much more scientific or if you like implementation scientific lens to these kind of issues as well i think anthony that's a a really important point and Let me take you back to uh, 1976 when we had the first, you know, the Amaata Declaration and the commitment to primary health care. I had just joined WHO in 78, and there was a a, a real commitment at the time to primary health care and how to implement Amaata. And where WHO struggled for a decade was to figure out, and it never really did, what was the kind of support that countries needed to achieve primary health care? What were the indicators to measure that support? What, what resources were needed? And I actually believe we're in another moment, 40 years later, with the recent uh, commitment to UHC at the last World Health Assembly, and now I believe we're going to have a re- an AMA at a revisited uh, meeting very shortly and I, uh, in Kazakhstan, I believe. And, and I, I think that here again, we need to ask the question, what, what are we going to help and, and work with countries to do to achieve UHC? Is it training? Um, is, it, is it community involvement? What are the specifics? And what is it going to cost? And who's going to pay for it? My concern, if I can broaden this a little bit, is that resources for global health in general are at best stable and and more likely declining. Um, The only bilateral left that's giving money to AIDS is the U.S. Uh, And and so where are we going to get the, the funding for global health in general and particularly for strengthening health systems once we define what we need the money for? I was recently at the International AIDS Conference in Amsterdam, and most of the talk was about domestic health financing. Well, that sounds good, and that's fine for maybe most middle-income countries. But for low-income countries, we're, we're a long way away uh, from their being able to raise the funds that they need to raise domestically to strengthen their health uh, systems. So I, I think your point is really critical and one that we really need to do better this time at figuring out how countries can be supported in UHC, what resources they need, and then how we're going to obtain them. Yeah, I, well, we're on a very interesting point, so let's continue. Um, I, so, you know, recently Hans Roslin put out his book, Fatfulness, and Bill Gates put out a Time magazine, and I'm very much pushing the idea that things are getting better. And there are, there's a lot of evidence to support that, that, you know, we have seen mortality rates fall. We've seen uh, higher coverage of vaccines and, uh, and the like. But it raises this question um, uh, and, and what your view on this is about whether we are really getting better. Or are we facing some really difficult choices? That's one thing. And particularly about AIDS. I, you know, some people are saying we're going to see another pandemic and that we we haven't got that under control. So that's one thing. Do you think we're getting better with your 40-plus years of experience? Uh, The other about money and funding, 
I want to defend America here because, it, I mean, everyone bangs, uh, you know, and is worried that Trump will cut bills and all the rest of it. But if you look at what's happened at WHO, for example, with a steady decline in funding relative to all the other UN agencies, uh, it's, it's basically the Americans and Bill Gates and to some extent the British who completely fund WHO. That's not quite true. But a lot of people are not stepping up. And I just saw with this new Ebola outbreak that they put out a call and said, oh, we've had our first tranche of money to help us. And it's come from Bill Gates. And, you know, I, I think the Gates Foundation has done some amazing stuff, but it's not their job to prop up the entire world health system. Where are all the other countries? What are the European countries doing? Um, I mean, some give a reasonable amount, but I think, you know, I look at some of the amounts of money that they're putting, it's absolute peanuts. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> let's, let's drift on to that because you've got this 40-year perspective. Okay. Well, first, are we doing better? Certainly, as I mentioned, you, we have had great achievements. Uh, I don't, and I think we forget to mention them. Uh, and for example, in, in child, the reduction of child mortality. Uh, but I think what people are afraid of is uh, what about the next decade and even the next five years? That's the concern. Um, with regard to AIDS, as we heard in Amsterdam, there are pockets uh, in southern Africa, one district, in, in, for example, in KwaZulu-Natal, where the prevalence of HIV in women in their early 30s is 70 percent, seven zero. Now, that's one that's one district. OK, that's not all of South Africa by any means. But there is a concern with the great increase of youth, the population bulge in youth. Uh, the fact that many men uh, in their in their 20s are not getting tested and not therefore being treated. There is there are there is concern that there are enough hyperendemic areas right now that in Africa, but also in, in, in Eastern Europe, around, particularly around injecting um, drug use, that if we take the, our eye off the ball uh, with HIV, we could see a resurgence in a number of areas. Now, it's not necessarily going to happen. It, it's really going to depend on how much we can maintain our current efforts, uh, particularly with regard to treatment, but also with regard to prevention. I think the other, the other concern that you have to have in the next five to 10 years are the NCDs. When you look at the, the enormous increase in, say, hypertension, stroke, um, uh, heart disease, diabetes, 10% of the world has population has diabetes now. Where, where are we on that? What's the future for that? Where is the, where is the, the planning? Where is the national commitments? Where are the policy changes? Um, and so I, I do think that, uh, that, that the next five to 10 years, we've got some challenges and where the leadership of WHO is going to be critical. Now, to think, well, if we just strengthen health systems, everything is going to be fine. I, I'm afraid that's a little naive. Um, I, I think we must still maintain a diagonal approach, as you, as you said, or uh, you, we must maintain technical expertise, programmatic approaches, monitoring and evaluation, and strong technical support to countries to be able to deal with the problems that they have. Now, money. Money, of course, is critical. Um, there's talk of the global fund becoming a global fund 
for strengthening of health systems. Um, well, to some extent, Global Fund has already moved in that direction. Uh, I think bilateral funding is, is serious. It's a serious problem. The U.S. has maintained its commitment um, despite the, the, the presidency. I think that we're, this will probably continue uh, mostly because of the congressional commitment to AIDS that goes back to President Bush. Um, but I do agree with you that where are the Europeans? The Brits are still hanging in there. But what happens if, if, if Brexit comes into play? Um, there is talk of the Germans taking more of a leadership role in global health. Uh, you, you probably are aware of this, and that would be wonderful. If, uh, but we do need some leadership in Europe. Um, to help motivate the other countries to move forward on global health. It, it cannot just be the Gates Foundation, uh, the U.S. And, and the U.K., and the rest we're going to leave to countries to sort out, particularly, I want to say again, when it comes to the low-income countries. All the data on low-income countries shows that they are going to continue to need uh, the kind of development assistance they've been getting for decades Yes, they need to start to own more of their uh, health system costs, but we also need to help them own it. Yeah, I mean, okay, this is this is very interesting. I agree with a lot of what you've just said. Let me just play devil's advocate and put the pessimistic view. Uh, one is that we've, since the financial crisis, we've been living in a sort of cloud cuckoo land of cheap money and incredibly low interest rates, almost 0%. So everyone's been borrowing, and a lot of developing countries have been borrowing in dollars. And now you're seeing the first sign of trouble. You're seeing a big trouble in Turkey, where their, you know, their currency is crashing because the dollar's getting stronger. They owe a lot more money. The same is going to happen with a lot of other middle-income countries, I fear, as things shows up. So that's one thing. Secondly, you could say that the rise in inequality of income, which has been dramatic within countries, and the environmental crisis that is becoming more and more evident and is going to get worse and worse, and the rise of NCDs with the, if you like, the pernicious role of big corporates, big food, big junk stuff, big sugar, big alcohol, big tobacco and all the rest that we're over consuming all of this is a kind of perfect storm and that unless we regulate our economy more effectively and regulate carbon pollution and and deal with some of these very complex political issues health is inexorably going to get worse now that's the gloomy scenario do you share some of those concerns or do you think that's overly pessimistic? I, I think that there, we should not hesitate to um, uh, contradict those, uh, particularly in my country, who think climate change is a hoax. Uh, I, I absolutely believe that uh, it is a, a genuine threat to the planet in general, and, and, and certainly uh, to health. Um, I think the steps that need to be taken uh, at a global level are going to ha have to be taken, unfortunately, right now without the United States. 
at a at a national level. Although I will tell you, in this country, at a local level, uh, there's a lot going on w- with regard to reducing carbon emissions, and and because the population in this country strongly believes that we need to deal with with climate change, I I think it would be a mistake to ignore it. I think. I don't hear much about it from WHO. Uh, they may be doing more than I than I realize, uh, and maybe there's a feeling that this should be left to the environmentalists. But I do think we we do need to work with countries in helping them uh, be prepared and to confront the consequences of climate change. And do what they can to prevent it. I think energy, uh, environment, and health are the three big sectors in development today. Um, And I would hope that WHO would be part of all of that. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, I mean, there are some good people working at WHO on climate, but they're in a tiny box. I mean, there's only about four or five of them. And the budget is tiny. I mean, it's under 10 million a year. So they're having to raise lots of money working with others. But, I mean, given the potential scale of this problem, I think there should be a much higher profile and re- more resources given to that. But that's, that's almost another discussion. Um, okay. okay. Listen, thanks, Mike. This has been great. Yes, talk- yes and uh, I, I enjoyed our conversation. Um, and I, I do want to say again that um, we... we uh, XWHO um, staff, we we need to help the organization move forward and to, to to really think with the organization how it can be more effective. This is a really challenging time. We have enormous interest in, in young people in global health uh, who want to come into the field, uh, and we need a leader, and we really need WHO to be that leader. Yeah, and, and I think it's good overall that under the new strategy at WHO with Tedros he's got a very clear three things that he wants to focus on and I mean they're big things but one is you know dealing with emergencies and humanitarian settings the second is to deal with universal health coverage and that touches on many of the things we talked about today and the third is a much broader and and this is less defined approach to health in general of well-being and uh you know feeling healthier in your lives and that touches on ncds and some of the other things we talked about and so that's a fairly simple vision that i think most people understand but within it we need much more funding we need much more attention to systems much more attention to the detail of how you make things better and 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 hold countries accountable so i think a lot of the issues we've been talking about here apply to who more generally great well good talking with you Right, Teresa, welcome. You're the coordinator for maternal child health, uh, adolescent health indicators at the World Health Organization. And, you know, we've been talking about IMCI, the Integrated Management of Childhood Illness, now been in place for 20 years. And it's tackling a whole number of things through integrated delivery of both preventive and curative services. So... Obviously, we want to monitor and evaluate what's happened. Has it been integrated in in our ways of monitoring what's happened? 
No, that's the problem. It hasn't been integrated in a way to, to monitor programs. So even though we're trying to get this integrated um, health care for the child, and we, we put out a set of recommended um, indicators and data to collect along those lines, we haven't looked at the real reality on the ground of, of what's happening. So as a result, uh, what we really have are um, parallel systems that are disease specific. And so we'll have a reporting system for the immunization. We'll have another data collection system for HIV. We'll have another one for malaria, another one for nu nutrition. And we don't have um, an integrated system now in place to just look at the tile as a whole and collect the information we need in an integrated way. Why do you think that didn't happen? I mean, is it in part because of donors giving money for specific programs and not really thinking in a systematic way or a systems way. Yeah, it's, it's just been a lot of vertical programming. So donor, let's say a donor is interested in, in HIV. They came in, they said, we want to improve uh, the services delivered for HIV, and we want reporting very specific to HIV. And they'll set up a system for, for HIV, have all the data come down and kind of ignore the, the other um, data and information. And then you have this beautiful system in place that can collect all the HIV data and cannot collect the other data. And, um, and the donor, you know, really pushing and saying, we want this specific disease information. But the other problem has also been that the governments haven't um, had a strong enough governance and stuff to control this. So they want, you know, they say, okay, this donor is giving me money. So I'm going to have that reporting system. And then another donor comes and gives me money for immunization. And I'm going to have that reporting system. There's not this governance is saying, wait a second, we need to have one national reporting system, one way to collect data and, and in an integrated fashion. This, uh, and presumably this presents a huge overload. I was, I was struck in your paper that in Malawi, 42 types of data tools were in use. Yeah. And imagine if, imagine if you were just one healthcare worker and you had to do 42 different reports. It's a little crazy, you know. You should be able to have one um, um, health record for their child and record it all there and have it in, in some way that it kind of maybe in an automated way even um, gets reported reported up a way and a way and maybe even an automated way or dashboard that you can look at the information and and use it to improve the the um, program that you're uh, delivering. But if you have to spend your time filling out an HIV report, an immunization report, a malaria report, and a blah blah blah. Um, how are you going to take care of the uh, of the child? Well, absolutely, and that comes back to a very crucial thing of of everyone wants data, and the overload goes right down to the bottom, and and uh, must reduce the quality uh, and responses. Now, one thing I've always been struck by is the difference between accountability and monitoring, because accountability, one definition is it's where you monitor but then it's where you review and act afterwards and that's been missing from many countries that they collect all this data but it doesn't get analyzed and then no decisions are taken in light of the data to change things yeah exactly because everybody's saying oh i have to just report and it just goes up and it's like in some kind of vacuum and it doesn't come back down again 
And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, you'd get higher quality data if you actually fed it back and used it for, for, for a purpose. And uh, so we were trying to recommend an integrated way to do this in a systematic way to look at this where every quarter you're looking at the data uh, at the district when you have to, as a whole district management team and then maybe less often at um, a regional level within the country and maybe at least once a year within at the national level. But it's really having a systematic way to look at the information, put it all together and uh, do it on a um, work planning cycle that many um, districts have. But unfortunately, that's not um, commonly done. But if you, I mean, if you were president of the world or queen <laughs> of the world, you know, um, I remember, you know, when I was at WHO, we had a lot of meetings about how to get a very simple data set. Um, you refer in your paper to the fact that they came up previously with 100 indicators for, I think, universal health coverage. And yeah. then for the uh, global strategy on every woman, every child, we came down to 60. And then we decided to get it down to, I think, was it 15 or 16 core indicators? Yes. Uh, because isn't that more realistic? Isn't it better that countries or health workers have to look at just, you know, a dozen or 15 indicators and do it properly rather than get swamped with all these other indicators of doubtful value. Exactly. So what you have to do is say, what is it that is try to use proxy indicators? What I mean is what is it you're trying to measure that you could use one indicator that would wind up measuring that whole system? For example, uh, your medical logistics system for distribution of drugs, you don't have to monitor every single drug. You just have to, if they're all being delivered the same way, then just choose one. And that would be the proxy for, for that. So th that would, would really decrease the number of indicators. And then what you require to be reported up should be very small amount and you could have a catalog of other indicators that could be chosen at a local level, but they choose it if they need it, if they're going to use it for the program. Otherwise, it's um, they just use the core that they need. So I think that's the way to just to, to get it to be less and, and more manageable. No, I completely agree. And when I was in Ethiopia with the national meeting to look at quality indicators and the like, I was very struck that the one indicator that was coming up time and time again in, in in districts that was really leading to political action was maternal death. And of course, in Britain, we set up more than 60 years ago, the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths, which led to huge changes in the way we run care for mothers and newborns. And I think there are certain core indicators that really do lead to political action and others that really don't. Would you agree with that? Yes. I mean, mortality will, uh, will if mortality with um, some kind of indication as to why that occurred will definitely always lead to some kind of action. So we, uh, you know, that's maternal death surveillance and responses is what you were um um, kind of uh, referring to, but we're also expanding to perinatal audits and looking at thinking about child 
um, death audits and being able to know uh, what is what is actually happening. Is it something happening within um, the healthcare facility or is it something beyond um, that's causing the mortality? And it just helps you by having that information and the cause to take direct action. And it will, because mortality is something that is very dramatic, that will um, make uh, uh, our politicians or higher ups of healthcare workers take action. Great. Well, look, what, just to finish, what positive messages are there about, you know, new things that are happening either at country level or at WHO? Um, A lot of interest, I think, in mobile technology about people being able to collect data instantaneously and get results and likewise to feedback to governments and to WHO. Give me some good news to finish on. No, good news is that all of that is the good news. So um, what is um, happening now, for example, is that we've been putting together a um, a suggestion of how to use the health management information system to visualize um, the the key information that you need from maternal, newborn, child, and adolescent health health going through the cascade of what uh, uh, um, should be received um, at each um, level of the um, of the life course, and that is being um, in a um, whole standardized way to do this with HIV, with TB, with malaria. So this and and uh, once they had seen our uh, work, they were very excited. Said this is really can bring this um, um, all together, um, and then we haven't actually um, really worked as much as we could and it is beginning to do we are beginning to do so with all the new technologies being able to uh, have an easier way to put the information down have an easier automated way to actually get a report out or information out and just making it easier for the health worker using um, not only cell phones but um, using um, tablets um, as well and there's a lot of investment going into that and then finally it's just trying to get the global partners to align and there is this thing called the health data collaborative that's been trying to get all these donors to align one reporting system um, and but there's also uh, other initiatives taking place in which we're just trying to get at least uh, the uh, reproductive the maternal, newborn, and child, adolescent health community to align um, all the indicators and be very um, uh, uh, not have this proliferation of indicators, but be very specific as to what are the core and what are needed. And monitoring policies in countries, you you you're about to put out a big policy survey. Is that right? Yes, that is. Um, and that policy surveys, first time where we've integrated, it goes all the way from sexual reproductive health to maternal, newborn, child, and adolescent health, and um, 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 gender violence uh, as well. And uh, we're using new um, technologies to do this on an online format in a modular way so that each area can be um, answered by the appropriate experts within countries. And then we're asking for uploading of source documents so we can actually see what the policies are. And and there's not a lot of policy repositories out there. So this will be an excellent thing to get a sense of what policies are in place, if they're aligned, and if things need to be um, changed. And we're going to be using that information to go back to um, several of, or, or of the countries and actually have a dialogue about what's in place and what needs to be in place. 
And will listeners to this podcast have access to this survey data and and portals of data? Oh yes, and so it's all open, going to be open access. So eventually, we we will have it online, and people will be able to not only visualize it but also download it. Uh, thanks very much, Teresa. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you very much for listening. If you know someone who might benefit from this podcast, please do tell them. Help us to grow our community and do check out or sign up to my blog at www.anthonycostello.net. If you sign up, you'll get an email every week which links to the blog or podcast. So have a great week. Bye.